Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. Hello. This week, Alzheimer's disease is going under the microscope. What is it? Why do people get it? And can we cure it? Plus, in the news, why the planet needs more trees, a breakthrough in storing computer data, and the science of a good excuse. I'm Katie Haler. I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. This week, as well as cutting carbon emissions to limit climate change, scientists in Switzerland have reported that increasing the amount of forest on the planet should also be a major priority. According to calculations, one billion hectares of new forest would lock away over 200 billion tonnes of carbon. That's enough to keep temperature rises by 2050 to within one and a half degrees Celsius. But have we actually got the space for all these trees? And can this really work? Well, the new study suggests that we do, and it can, but we need to act fast. University of Connecticut ecologist Robin Chasden, who wasn't involved in the work, took a look at the figures for us. Bringing back about 1 billion hectares of forest cover would help to limit the effects of global warming to uh, only 1.5 degrees by 2050. This would be additional forest cover because we have lost a tremendous amount of forest cover already. What's the proposed mechanism? Because a forest is only a temporary stopgap, isn't it? In the sense that a tree pulls some carbon out of the atmosphere, granted. But as soon as that tree gets burned or it rots down, the carbon goes straight back into the atmosphere. So it's not a permanent way of sequestering carbon like the coal and the oil that we burned and then released the carbon from in the first place. That's true, but when you restore a forest, you have more than one tree, and you have trees that are continually growing over time. So even if individual trees may die, you have new trees coming up. And after that forest reaches an equilibrium point, then you have more long-term or almost permanent storage unless some disaster happens. So how does this sit with what we anticipate human population is doing? Because the reason at the end of the day that we have declining forest cover is chiefly because humans have gone in there with chainsaws. Exactly. I think we need to consider this from a very holistic perspective. In addition to protecting what forests currently remain on our planet, we need to find ways to continue to source our products without further deforestation, and we need to replenish forests on land that has been cleared and is currently being used for crops or for grazing land. But the human population's going up, not down, and we can't even feed the ones we have got at the moment. And so you're advocating, or or this paper is advocating, that we pull even more land back and turn it back into forest. 
as well as, in some way, feeding an increasingly hungry population? I think the key is that, first of all, not all of the cleared land in our planet is being used effectively to produce food, and not all that food is getting to the people who need it. It's not just a matter of creating more forests and protecting them. It's also a matter of improving the delivery of agriculture, the sustainability of agriculture, and the distribution of food to to needy people. So this group are advocating that we need about a billion hectares more forests than we currently have, and that includes recouping some of what's been lost. But does that prediction also take into account land loss owing to climate change? Because if one looks at the models of what we think climate change is going to do to the planet, we think that the available land area that we can depend on is going to shrink. Yes, and if we don't act quickly to begin to restore the tree cover, it's going to become virtually impossible in the future because climate change is already affecting the ability of of trees to grow and the ability of forests to remain. And the simulations done in this paper highlight the urgency of beginning restoration and, and reforestation now. But I would caution that we don't need quick fixes. We need quality fixes. We need intelligent planning, and we need to think about the social and economic issues as well because the new forest cover that we need needs to endure and it needs to be beneficial. It's not just a question of throwing trees on the ground and planting trees and and wishing for the best. I think there's a huge array of social issues and economic issues that also need to be confronted as part of this activity. And are people, do you think, politically, internationally on board with this? Well, we do have many obstacles, and certainly our political leadership in many countries is putting obstacles in place. But there are many grassroots efforts, and there are many international organizations and programs that are getting countries on board. For example, the Bond Challenge, which has over 47 countries that have made commitments for restoration within their countries. Over 170 million hectares have been committed. And I think as scientists, We need to point out uh, what we need to do and how we can do it. Still a very long way to go, though, isn't there, between 170 million hectares and a billion hectares. That was ecologist Robin Chasden. She was commenting on the paper by Thomas Crowther at uh, ETH Zurich that was published in the journal Science this week. Well, computers now. and My first computer hard drive, I'm ashamed to admit, held a heady 10 megabytes of data, and it was the size of a shoebox. These days... We have routinely got systems where we have disks that hold a million times that amount and they're a fraction of the size. But even so, at the rate we're going, we're soon going to be churning out so much data every day that the physical space that we need to store it and the electricity that we need to power it is going to become a huge problem. Now, at the moment, we convert the data we want to store into a series of zeros and ones, a bit like computer Morse code. And this sequence is written onto a hard disk. To store more noughts and ones, you need bigger or more disks. But Brenda Rubenstein at Brown University in the US has come up with a much better way of doing it using molecules. Now, in her system, the presence of a specific type of molecule in a droplet of liquid is what equals one. And the absence of that molecule equals a zero. And because she can mix many different types of molecules together in the same droplet, she can store much more information but in a fraction of the space. To read the information back, she feeds the droplets into an analyzer that's called a mass spectrometer, and this detects whether a molecule is there or not. She's using it at the moment to store very small images. Ankita Anaban heard how it works. 
typically when we're thinking about data, which can be images, it can be text, we usually store that data in a series of zeros and ones. And when we want to store those in different media, basically what we need are two states to represent the zero and the one. We're trying to think about how we can actually store those states, those zeros and ones, in the smallest possible volume that we can think of. What we do is we store information in the presence and absence of molecules. If we have a solution, we can either put a very specific identifiable molecule in the solution, or we can leave it out. And so by choosing which molecules we put in or out, we can encode a string of bits. So how big are your molecules? Our molecules are roughly several angstroms by several nanometers uh, across. Uh, so we're talking about areas of you know nanometers squared or so. Uh, however, we can use all different types of molecules. So, so those specifications are for some of the smallest molecules that we're thinking about. So in terms of size, how does that compare to your typical hard drive? The comparison that I love to make is a little back of the envelope calculation that I did a while ago. If we're able to store bits in absolutely every molecule in a glass of water, for example, um, that glass of water would be able to store about 10 to the 28 different bits. Now, if we scale that up to what that would mean in terms of hard drives, that same amount of information would require about 200 Empire State Buildings worth of, of hard drives in order to store And so how are you actually picking up these molecules, which are absolutely tiny, and mixing them up? So this is the part that makes me super excited. We've gotten to the point where engineers can essentially create very automated, very fast liquid handling robotics. So our robot can very quickly mix all the molecules that we need to make our information. Once you've mixed up the solution, you've got your image in a liquid form. How do you then get Mm -hmm. the image back from that? Yeah, so here is where we use some excellent modern technology that's that's really come along over the past decades, which is mass spectrometry. Um, the whole idea of mass spectrometry is that this very nice machine can read out the individual masses of all of the molecules in a solution. We know which molecules that we're using to store the information. We run our solution through the mass spectrometer, and then we see if the masses that match up with those molecules actually appear in the spectra that we take. And that allows us to read out exactly exactly what was in our solution to begin with. How long does it take? We've stored images of the scale of tens of bits uh, all the way to uh, hundreds of thousands of bits. And in order to make these images, it takes on the order for the liquid handling tens of minutes to, to hours. Some of the limitations there are the speeds it takes to actually mix that many molecules. And the other limitation is is really how much can we resolve using mass spectrometry. As we advance those techniques, we'll be able to not only mix more molecules, we will also be able to read out more molecules accurately. This sounds like quite a sophisticated setup you've got in your lab. Do you think realistically Mm -hmm. it's something that everyday people could use in the way that we use, say, USB sticks? Yes, uh, eventually I foresee that. Now, obviously, the, the technology is young, and we're doing this for the purpose of doing basic science to figure out you know, what it is that we need, what are the engineering barriers, and so forth. Um, and so once we work these things out, like we have, it's actually not that difficult to do, and I certainly see these things being miniaturized in the future. Exactly what, what direction that will take, we'll see uh, as the science proceeds. That was Brenda Rubenstein speculating about the future of data storage with Ankita Anirban. And that work was published in the journal PLOS One. Still to come... 
Are plants capable of conscious thought? And what's the best excuse you've ever made or heard? We've got a world authority who studies the science of excuses coming up in a few minutes. Now, they say that seeing is believing, and the revolution in our understanding of the world and the universe around us that came with the invention of the telescope and the microscope is very hard to overstate. And devices like the electron microscope now mean that it's possible to see even what molecules and atoms look like. But one of the problems with these existing techniques is that you can end up destroying a sample in the course of just trying to look at it, which is why a new technology being developed at the University of Newcastle in Australia and at the University of Cambridge, and which uses helium atoms to image things non-destructively, looks set to be a game-changer. Naked scientist Matthew Hall went to see it in action. Imagine you're looking through a microscope. You see something magnificent and decide to zoom in on it. But as you twist the knob, you realise you're already at max magnification. This unfortunate circumstance is one of many that plague microscopy, the science of looking at the super tiny. In a mission to spread awareness on the varying solutions for these issues, Paul DeStore, from the University of Newcastle in Australia, is visiting the UK. Paul is working on a microscope that takes images with helium atoms instead of with light. Light can actually damage materials. If we think about what happens to our clothes when we leave them in sunlight for long periods of time, what happens to them? They fade. They fade because the light has enough energy to actually damage the dye molecules in the clothing itself. The reason I made my way into the Cavendish lab was for a new microscopy method. It is called the Scanning Helium Microscope, or SHEM for short, and it operates in a completely different manner to previous microscopes. So rather than a charged particle like an electron, we are for the first time using neutral species, helium atoms. The microscope itself is huge, about the width of a sofa, with the main chamber looking like a futuristic barrel to a cannon. Lots of metal boxes comprise the front of the device as well, allowing for the entire system to be under vacuum. Why is operating in a vacuum so important, though? In order to create a helium beam, what we have to do is to take helium gas and pump it up to high pressure and allow it to expand through a tiny hole into a vacuum. And that hole is around about 10 microns in size. And when you do that... And you get a beam. That beam then travels to a sample holder where it strikes whatever sample is in its way. Its energy is many, many orders of magnitude lower than electrons, even than light. And so there's no chance of the helium atoms damaging the surface at all. The beam then flows through the cannon-shaped barrel to a very sensitive helium detector that uses the flux or flow a force from the atoms paired with position data to form an image. We pump the, the helium gas out, and then that helium gas can be collected through actually just a large balloon and then recompressed and recycled. Thanks to wave-particle duality, a theory in quantum mechanics that says all particles can be represented as a wavelength, helium atoms have their own associated wavelengths, which is absolutely tiny compared to light's. This allows for a theoretical maximum resolution of an image taken with helium to be 8,000 times better than the maximum of a light image because the wavelength of helium atoms is 8,000 times smaller than lights. We're limited at the moment to a resolution of around about a micron. The next stage of development is to get that now to around about 50 nanometers. And that new instrument is actually being built next door right now. 
Even with future plans underway to make the resolution much better than it is now, the microscope is still a busy bee in the microscopy community. Up on the screen during my visit were images of a fossilized dinosaur tooth, microscopic glass spheres, and even a live stem cell changing into a different cell type. If you want to image them in an electron microscope, they are very difficult to image because, of course, electrons are charged, you put them on an insulator, they can't go anywhere. It's like like rubbing a balloon on your head, you know, you build up static. So in an electron microscope, to image these things, you would first have to coat them with gold. You don't actually see what's really there then, you see a coated sample. And for many of these samples, they don't want them coated in gold because that means they'll never be able to use them again. And so that's the key point here. We've got a technique that doesn't need to do that. And because the helium atoms are electrically neutral, they're not charged. Having the power to image on the nanoscale without damaging a sample has tremendous potential for material and life science research. All of science is based on observation. If when you're actually observing something, you change what you look at, how can you be sure of your measurement? The process of measurement should not change what you measure. What we see now here for the first time, I think, is an imaging technique that is guaranteed not to damage what we look at. Paul Dastour, ending that report by Matthew Hall. You know what they say, Katie? You go to see the doctor and you say, if you can't helium, you can't curium, you have to bury him. Oh dear, another classic. Um, Anyway, out of the lab and into the sunshine now, because this week an opinion piece in the journal Trends in Plant Science argues that, contrary to what some others might think, plants are not conscious. In other words, they're not aware of their surroundings in an intelligent way. But can they think in other ways? to try to get to the root of this. Sorry. Heather Jameson went for a garden stroll with plant scientist Howard Griffiths. We're sitting amongst all these flowers. Are they aware of our presence? Are they conscious? Well, they would be when we shaded them or when we pulled them up. Right, Okay, but they're not conscious in the way that we think we're conscious. Well, that is debatable, but my take on it is that no, they are not conscious in the way that we understand intelligent beings to be conscious and capable of making independent decisions. And the authors of this paper, they would agree with you on that? They would, yes. They are arguing that where another paper has suggested that plants can uh, have innate consciousness and intelligence, they argue that this is incorrect. One of the studies referenced in the paper apparently demonstrated that plants were capable of learning the association between the occurrence of one event and the anticipation of another event, known as Pavlovian learning. This has been widely demonstrated with dogs. If you always ring a bell when you give a dog food, eventually the dog begins to associate the ringing of the bell with getting food, such that the dog salivates when it hears the ringing of a bell without actually getting any food. The scientists replicated this study in pea plants by exposing them to two different stimuli during the training phase, light and wind. The results seem to suggest that the plants could be trained to associate the presence or absence of wind with the anticipation of light. However, the authors of this new paper argue that this study needs to be repeated with more stringent controls in place before a clear conclusion can be drawn. So what do we know? We know plants can remember, in in inverted commas, remember, because we have plants that track the sun. They're called heliotropic plants. And we know, for instance, that they will start the day 
ready to face the sun and then they will follow the sun round just like sunflowers are said to do to maximise the amount of sunlight that they get to develop the pollination and so on. Speaking of memory, what about Venus flytraps? You might have heard that they can count up to five. When an insect lands on it, the plant counts the footsteps to check that it is actually food and not just a drop of water, say. Surely this must require some sort of memory, because for me to count to five, I need to remember that I just counted four and three, etc. Scientists believe that the plant can count by releasing a chemical for each count. Imagine you have a bottle with a small hole in the bottom. If you half fill the bottle, water will start to drain out and eventually empty if you don't put any more in. But if you quickly add some more water, the water level will go up. If you do this a few times in quick succession, the water bottle will overflow. The Venus flytrap uses a similar method, and when the threshold is reached, the trap snaps shut. But what about pain? If I was to pluck off a leaf off one of these plants here, would the plant feel pain? Pain is it's a difficult stress to define even in animal terms, and we have to be very careful the terms we use. But nonetheless, I think if you went across and plucked a leaf, or if you had a caterpillar walking across the surface of the leaf, you can certainly see that a plant can detect that. You can see the footprints marked across the leaf surface where chemicals have been produced within the leaf, defence chemicals. And also, we know that if you pull that leaf off or bite a piece out of a leaf, chemicals will be produced that will move to an adjacent plant and warn it that the plants are under attack from potential pests or pathogens. So there is a warning system, they can respond, they can send signals, but I don't think they can feel pain. So is it just a problem of metaphors? The plants seem to be able to show some sort of ability to adapt their behaviour in response to their environment in the way that we think of as learning but actually it's a very different process and it's not really appropriate to call it learning in plants. Yeah I think so I think that's exactly it I mean we have a number of different definitions now of intelligence when we talk about whether animals can show intelligent responses such as maybe shrimps or octopus or indeed humans and so on equally so we have artificial intelligence you know we're all now being hearing about self-driving cars and so on so in some respects do we define that motor vehicle as having intelligence and at what level and I think that one could equally rationalize that plants have a form of intelligence if you move along that spectrum of definitions but it's not cognate intelligence as we understand it from a human perspective. Howard Griffiths from the University of Cambridge and he was speaking with Heather Jameson. Now we're all guilty of making up excuses aren't we? Sorry, there was traffic. Couldn't come to work, accidentally got on a plane. Or, as one person told the UK tax office, my ex-wife left my tax return upstairs, but I suffer from vertigo and I can't go and get it. Hmm, That one seems almost plausible. Maybe not. Do these excuses really work, though? And what makes some excuses better than others? Well, Paulina Sleever is researching excuses at the University of Cambridge. Best one I ever got, actually. Quite funny, it was a guy who forgot to turn up to this programme. And we rang him up when we were on air and we said, where are you? And he said, I'm really sorry, I've forgotten. And it was ironic because actually it was a show all about memory. (laughs) But welcome to the programme. Why do you study this, Pauline? I got interested in excuses because they're absolutely everywhere. It's something that we come across in our daily life all the time. But then they also come up in the courtroom, for example, where, you know, lawyers evaluate excuses and they're valid excuses that you can make in the course of a criminal inquiry. And what's the best one you've come across, as in the best, perhaps the lamest excuse? 
Oh, the lamest ones, uh, particularly when teaching undergraduates, is sorry, I forgot to attach my essay. Well, that's classic. Yeah, the email must have gone missing. The Everyone blames the technology. And, and yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty common, I must admit. So how are you actually going about studying this then? What's the, the actual methodology? Right. So I am a philosopher. And of course, philosophers' laboratories tend to be armchairs in general. But we draw on a whole range of methods. Ordinary speech, you know, how we speak about a particular phenomenon, how we make excuses, how we respond to excuses, a little bit of linguistics as well. And then also psychology is important. And what are you, are you just gathering examples of people making excuses and then looking at the context to try to understand why do people make excuses in what sorts of settings? What originally started interesting me is just what the various different kinds of considerations that we appeal to, you know, from a headache to provocation, what they have in common. Why do you think people resort to excuses? Why are we not just honest and say, look, I'm really sorry, I'm just lazy? Or I'm really sorry, but I, might, I had a better offer. I went to the pub, I didn't do my homework. Well, I think uh, it's important to distinguish two things, right? So having excuses and making excuses. So very often we do genuinely have an excuse. So we failed to do something, but there is a consideration that mitigates our blame for it. Is this almost like the sort of the verbal equivalent of haggling then? You know, I want to buy something for X and you want me to pay Y and we kind of meet in the middle where I, I make an excuse for what I have done or haven't done. And that's that's kind of middle ground. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, when we when we fail to live up to our obligation in general, it means that we incur some other oblig obligations. So now I owe an apology or I owe an explanation <laughs> or I might owe you a drink or some other kinds of compensation. So reciprocity. Reciprocity. Yeah. And part of so part of what happens when you're making an excuse, I think, is you're trying to negotiate just what the fallout is from your uh, norm violation or your your failed obligation. You know, you're trying to negotiate just how much of an apology you owe and what kind of apology it really is. And some people are obviously better at that than others. But have you come across a formula then, almost for, for what constitutes a good excuse? So if I want to make an, uh, make an excuse for something and I want it to actually sound pretty plausible and, and actually have the consequence I intend, which is people will forgive me or let me off for whatever I failed to deliver on, is there a recipe for success in this? Um, there is. The, the devil lies in the detail. So a good excuse acknowledges that things went wrong. You didn't act as you should have done. So I've got to hold my hands up first of all. I'm sorry. So a bit of an apology and then a, I'm sorry I should have done X. So I acknowledge the issue. You acknowledge the issue. What comes next? And then you say, but the intention on which I acted, where intention is something like your plan for action, that one was morally adequate. And the reason why it failed to work was because of some unforeseen circumstances, something beyond your control. So it's like the ABC, acknowledge for an A, B is but, <laughs> but, and then C, I could do better, but, you know, there we are. That's Maybe right. next time. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I know. I'm, be I'm better warned as to how to make excuses to my workmates when I don't deliver in future. Pauline, <laughs> thank you very much. That's Paulina Sleever, and uh, she's published the paper on making golden excuses and why we do it in the journal Philosophy and Public Affairs. Go and take a look. Thank you.
It's time now to delve into the mailbox of messages that you've been sending in to us. And we've heard from Reuven DeRay, who says, Hi, Chris, I heard you mention the other day that because of Pluto's elliptical orbit, it's sometimes closer to the sun than Neptune is. That being the case, is it possible that Neptune and Pluto will collide? So, yeah, Chris, what indeed. do you reckon? Could there be a planetary pileup? And the answer, fortunately, is no. And the reason for this is... Whilst it's true that Pluto does have this elliptical orbit, which means that at certain points in its 248-year orbit around the solar system, which is how long it takes to start in a position, go all the way around and come back to where it started, it is actually inside the orbit of Neptune, actually for about 20 years during that time. But the thing that Pluto does, in addition to going round the Sun, along with all the other planets in a flat plane stretching out from the Sun, is that Pluto goes up and down on its orbit a bit as well. And this has the effect, actually, that when it's actually within the orbit of Neptune, it's gone up, so it's always above where Neptune would be. So although the two may cross paths, they're not actually ever going to be on a collision course because Pluto's going to be way above Neptune. Also, there's what we call a gravitational resonance going on. Neptune takes about 160-odd years to go around the solar system, so it's doing three laps for every two laps that Pluto does. And that has the effect of actually accelerating or decelerating each of the bodies respectively. So they can never get to more than about two and a half billion kilometres of each other. So they're never going to crash anyway. So there's two good reasons why they're going to be there indefinitely. So we can be reassured You can be reassured. No planetary pileup coming. (laughs) Thanks, Chris. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. Alzheimer's disease is the commonest form of dementia and it affects more than half a million people just in the UK. And we're devoting the next 30 minutes to finding out about it. To start, though, what happens when a person begins to notice that there might be something wrong with their memory? To understand the clinical side of things, we're joined by Tim Rittman, a clinician from Cambridge University. So, Tim, from a clinical perspective, what does Alzheimer's actually look like? That's a really difficult question to answer. Uh, When people think about Alzheimer's, typically you think about the memory problems that that people have. So certainly memory loss is a part of Alzheimer's disease, but uh, there are other things which can come along with it as well. So difficulty with coordination, difficulty with uh, vision, what we call visuospatial difficulties. So that might be judging distances or driving, for example, people might find it difficult to reverse their car. People often have anxiety as well, particularly for for social situations. So someone who was previously very outgoing might become a lot more nervous in those situations. Uh, I think it's very hard to say what a typical person with Alzheimer's uh, looks like because, you know, in my clinic I see people who can't read and write and English is their second language. And Alzheimer's disease is very different from someone else I might see who's a professor from the University of Cambridge. So there's certainly a loss of function and problems with memory and other cognitive processes but it's very individual as to how that affects people's lives. Can we generalise about the progression? Is there a pattern that you tend to see? There is to, to, to some extent. In most people the first thing that 
that will be noticed will be the memory problems. And it's a particular type of, of memory problem where you'll forget things about events that have happened in the past or you, know, you might get lost. And usually these will be more noticeable to other people than, than to the person who's suffering memory problems or experiencing those, those memory problems. Over time, they become more problematic and more noticeable and people begin to lose function. So they, they begin to find day-to-day things more and more difficult. So, for example, if you cook a roast dinner, you know, it might be that you've never had to think about doing that. But then those processes become more difficult. It takes you more time. And then eventually that will be impossible to do because you just can't remember or put together all of the different parts of that, that particular process. Now, Alzheimer's isn't the only kind of dementia. So what other kinds are there and how is Alzheimer's different? Yeah, there's, there's, there's quite a few different types of dementia. I and mean, the, the commonest that we see certainly is Alzheimer's disease. Um, close behind that is something called vascular dementia. So that affects the blood vessels in the brain. From a, a clinical point of view, that often comes with difficulty walking. People's gait becomes very short. They make sort of small strides. And it often comes with a sort of grumpiness as well and a slight change in behaviour. There are other forms of dementia, so frontotemporal dementia, which is completely different from Alzheimer's disease in that often the memory is is quite good, but there's a lot of behavioural change. So people might become very inappropriate, make rude comments or or completely inappropriate comments, but that can also affect language as well. So there are certainly a whole group of dementias where problems with grammar or with syntax or with remembering what words mean are the, the, the first presentation. Is Alzheimer's a terminal illness can you die of having alzheimer's disease or is it a bit more complicated than that it is a bit more complicated than that i think there's no getting around the fact that alzheimer's is a progressive disease and if nothing else happens in your life then you'd expect that your life expectancy is shortened if you have alzheimer's disease Having said that, if you look at the death certificates of people who have had Alzheimer's disease, mostly it will say something like pneumonia um, because the the gradual loss of brain function eventually leads to a loss of those basic functions, so breathing, monitoring different bodily functions, and that can lead to a shutdown of the body. So, yes, Alzheimer's is certainly progressive, and it does lead to a a shortening of, of lifespan. I think increasingly as clinicians we're recognizing that and taking on board the more palliative aspects of Alzheimer's disease which is is really important along with all all the other uh, things that we have to address in the illness coming to the end of life and addressing those specific issues is increasingly important. So Tim if somebody comes in to see you in your clinic what kinds of assessments would you get them to do to potentially diagnose Alzheimer's how does it work? So, first thing, the most important thing is to take a history and talk through what's been going on. But we do get people to do some cognitive tests. So this tests a range of things. So memory, visual spatial function, language function, what we call executive function. So that's a planning and organisation of, of the brain. And we look at patterns within those tests. So there's no one specific answer that, you know, if you fail on that, you'll definitely have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease or dementia. It, it doesn't quite work like that. It's more fitting into a pattern along with the, the history and, uh, and other bits and pieces. And do you allow for the fact then that this is quite a nerve-wracking thing to do potentially, so people might not necessarily perform great on particularly one day or at one time? 
Absolutely, yeah. There are a lot of things we have to take into account. Certainly nerves come into it, and we recognise that. And the, the nurses who administer the testing clinic are really used to assessing people. And when we discuss the cases afterwards, we'll say, you know, how did the person perform on the test? Were they really making an effort, for example? Or were they really struggling and nervous? And we take into account the levels of education as well. You know, someone who's got a very high level of education is naturally going to do a bit better on the cognitive test than someone who isn't so educated. And we, we take all of those things into account. So these tests where someone is doing a particular um, task and giving you some information, they play one part. But do you actually look at what's going on inside someone's brain? We certainly do brain scans, yeah. One of the reasons, and probably the main reason for doing a brain scan, is to make sure we're not missing something like you a know, brain tumour or a stroke or some other cause for, for memory problems. But we do look for certain patterns of change in the brain and shrinkage in the brain. So is it fair to say then that people shouldn't panic perhaps if they forget something a couple of times but it's a it's a pattern that they should look out for what would you suggest people are wary of yeah, I think we've all I mean, we've all had that experience. You know, this morning I got up and went upstairs and couldn't remember what on earth I'd gone I'd gone there for, and that's entirely normal. Or that what we call the cocktail party anomia. You go to a party, you can't remember someone's name five minutes later. You know, these are all entirely normal and part of everyday life. Usually, it's it's when other people are are worried about your memory. Other people start noticing it, or you find that you. Yeah, those memory problems are really stopping you doing things. That's when we start thinking about, you know, could this be the early signs of dementia? And briefly, after you've diagnosed someone, what happens next to them? We start thinking about some some treatments sometimes, particularly in, in Alzheimer's disease. We have we don't have any treatments which can stop the disease process or, or turn the clock back. But we do have some medications which can can boost some of the chemicals in the brain to help with memory and attention. Tim Rittman will have to leave it there. Thank you very much. But what is actually going on in the brains of people who have or are developing Alzheimer's disease? Well, with us is Claire Durrant. She's from the Department of Clinical Neurosciences at the University of Cambridge. So, Claire, if we zoom in or, or look under a microscope at someone whose brain is affected by Alzheimer's, what do we see? So first of all, you'll see a loss of nerve cells. So these are the brain cells that are important for communicating information and for things like storing memory. But what is really diagnostic of Alzheimer's disease compared to, say, other forms of degenerative disease is the presence of two different types of protein clumps. So normal molecules that are found in the brain that have become clumped together to form these really nasty individual things. So the first of these is something called an A-beta plaque, which is made of a protein called amyloid beta. And you see this outside of the cells, and it forms these huge spherical kind of sheet-like structures. And around these, you often find that the nerve cells are dying, and you see lots of activation and inclusion of things like immune cells, which are chasing and coming to these areas. The second protein that we see is inside the nerve cells themselves. And this is a protein called tau, which we think normally is involved in helping shuttle things around the cell. But something in Alzheimer's causes it to clump into this sort of horrible tangle-like structure within the cell itself. So which comes first? Is it the beta amyloid that builds up and makes these big aggregates that then poisons the cells and makes those things build up inside the cells? Or do the cells get sick because they've got this stuff inside them and that then makes the beta amyloid accumulate? 
So we think from genetic evidence and also some studies where we're looking at the time course that A-beta does come first. And the reason we think that from a genetic side is that there's certain individuals, so very rare cases of Alzheimer's disease, so less than 1% of people with the disorder, that have mutations in the gene that means you create more of A-beta. The, ge- the gene that makes exactly. the amyloid Exactly, so protein. something called amyloid precursor protein. So not only do you create more of it, but it's more likely to form these sticky clumps. And interestingly as well, people with Down syndrome are also far more likely to develop Alzheimer's. And we believe that's because on chromosome 21, there's this protein that causes this A-beta. We also uh, and people with Downs have an extra copy of chromosome 21. They have 21. an extra chromosome 21, and we think that they produce too much A-beta. And we also see in regions where we have A-beta forming these plaques, we see tau protein inside the cell starting to follow. And we believe that whilst A-beta can kill nerve cells itself, it's more of a trigger potentially and tau itself might be the executioner inside these cells that causes them to die. Does the beta amyloid protein and therefore these plaques, do they form everywhere in the brain or do they tend to concentrate in just particular areas? So that's a really good question. So very early on in the disease, we tend to see them accumulating around the hippocampus. So as Tim said, this is the brain region which is involved in memory, particularly short-term memory. For example, remembering a conversation you just had, but navigation in space, where you left your car and things like that. Later in the disease, we start to see it spreading and we see it moving to different brain regions. And this can cause the change in symptoms from a primary memory deficit towards things like changes in vision or changes in behaviour later in the disease. And we see that actually tau sort of chases A-beta around the brain and appears later generally than A-beta. Do we know why the area around the hippocampus, the memory circuits, is particularly vulnerable and why it starts there? That's the killer question that we all really want to know. There's many, many theories as to why that is. My personal favourite theory is that this part of the brain needs a huge amount of energy in order to function. It's constantly firing off. Everything that we're doing on a day-to-day basis is, you know, rerouting through the hippocampus. And actually there's a lot of evidence that areas of the brain that are more active and needing more energy can be more quickly damaged by these processes and these proteins can clump up much quicker. So how long do you think then elapses between the time when you start to build these aggregates in the brain and them actually beginning to poison and kill off nerve cells. What do you think the gap is? We don't know for sure, but we think it's decades in that we see amyloid can be in the brain of people who have no symptoms of memory loss whatsoever. In fact, it's quite common to look in the brain of someone with old age and find these amyloid plaques. But we know they do take tens of years to build up. And that's one of the problems for actually trying to treat people is that when we've got the symptoms, the pathology, so the two types of protein, have been building up in the brain for many, many years prior to that. Equally, is that not an advantage, though, in the sense that if it takes that long for the disease to actually come in and do damage, we may have an opportunity, if we know it's going to do that, to intervene and stop it. Absolutely, and that's something that lots of scientists are working on, is trying to effectively diagnose Alzheimer's before it happens, or an earlier time point. Because if we know someone is going to develop Alzheimer's in 10 years, we have a much better chance of being able to stop that happening than trying to treat someone who's already showing the effects of the disease. And how might you be able to spot who those people are? Do we know, are are there people who are selectively vulnerable that we can spot them and say, you in 20 years 
are a sitter for Alzheimer's. Can we can we do that yet? So aside from the very rare cases, the 1% of Alzheimer's, where you have a known genetic mutation, that means you've got very early onset, most people have a spectrum of risk. So you can have genetic influences that might mean you're more likely to develop it. But even if you have them, it doesn't mean you will. So what we really need to do is to recruit more people into trials to try and understand if we can find some kind of, say, for example, blood test, what we call a biomarker, so something we can detect easily when you visit the doctor's office that might tell us that you'll develop Alzheimer's in 10 years. Because people were suggesting it might be possible in the same way people say the eyes are windows to the soul. Because the eye is an extension of the central nervous system, we might better get clues as to what's going on elsewhere in the brain by looking in your eye. Absolutely. There are studies looking into that and you do see accumulation of A-beta within the eye. We haven't yet 100% got this as a diagnostic procedure, but we're working towards it and it'd be far less expensive and invasive than having to go through a brain scan, which you know, you'd have to go to your local hospital to achieve rather than someone looking at the GP. Because, I mean, the numbers are pretty terrifying, aren't they? How many people we think, given that we're all living longer on average as a population, people are talking about numbers like 30% of the population by mid-century of a Western country may be suffering with Alzheimer's disease. So, I mean, 30% of the whole population probably be quite a high level, but certainly looking at over the age of 80 or 90 you're getting to almost 30 percent to 50 percent of the oldest olds that we'd be seeing so it really is a crisis that we need to be working towards and hopefully you know lots of people being interested in being involved in dementia research and funding the work will really help us move towards that cure. Claire thanks for coming to tell us about it that's Claire Durant from the Department of Clinical Neurosciences at the University of Cambridge. Coming up, can you have so many blood transfusions that your blood group changes? We'll be finding out later in the show. Before that, though, we heard from Omar on Twitter. At Naked Scientist said, The good old dog ate my homework excuse sadly can't be used anymore because most homework is now computer-based. So my new one has become my internet connection was down. So there you go, a man who moves with the times, obviously. Before we, we find out about blood transfusions, though, we're talking about Alzheimer's disease this week. And treating Alzheimer's is a very difficult thing, as we've heard. Often by the time you know the diagnosis, a lot of damage has already been done to the brain and the nervous system. So the emphasis is now very much on preventing or slowing down the progress of the disorder. And drug developers are looking for drug molecules that can do that. Adam Murphy. At the moment, we can't cure Alzheimer's. But that isn't going to stop people trying. John Skidmore at the Alborada Drug Discovery Institute in Cambridge is working to find ways of treating and perhaps even curing the disease. But how do you go about doing what's eluded so many? These days drugs are either small molecules which typically have perhaps about 70 atoms or large biomolecules that might be two or three hundred times bigger than that. We're finding small molecules. The reality of drug discovery is that we're still not good enough to sit down and use computers to design a drug from scratch. So we have to go about it in an iterative way, where we make a series of potential molecules, look at their properties, and then try to improve them with the next round of molecules. And over a period of weeks and months, we get better and better. These small molecules are interacting with a particular protein in the body that we've identified as having a role in the disease. So the first thing we do is to take a a big library of molecules, perhaps uh, a couple of hundred thousand, and look to see whether we can find some that interact at any level with that protein. With so many proteins and so many potential molecules to choose from, how do you even begin? 
Well, that's the difficult thing, actually. So sometimes if you have a crystal structure of that protein, you might be able to, what we would say, rationally design something. So perhaps you know a little bit about how the protein works and you can, you can build it from first principles in the way that you might design a car. But in lots of other cases, we simply don't know what the molecule is going to look like at all. And so you have to go back to screening. The library that we have is as diverse as we can make it. It has as many different types of chemical structures as we can find. Uh, and so it represents lots of potential start points. What are these molecules going to do, though? When you found something, how is it going to help? In terms of the drugs we're developing, we have to go back to the observations that the basic scientists are making. And really, the science points to the fact that in Alzheimer's and indeed lots of other diseases that cause dementia, there are misfolded proteins in the brain. Uh, in Alzheimer's in particular, we have uh, beta amyloid and we've got um, a protein called tau. Now, in fact, amyloid has been the focus over the last 15 or so years, uh, and it hasn't been all that successful. Uh, we know that the, the protein tau, which also uh, misfolds and aggregates, is sort of further down the disease progression. And so if we could find ways of changing the behaviour of tau, then that might be a way in which we could change the course of Alzheimer's disease. What we'd really like to do is to reduce the misfolded form of tau, uh, and we have a number of ideas about how we can remove that misfolded protein. The body and cells have, have got mechanisms in place for clearing misfolded proteins, and we've got ideas about how we can um, increase those processes in order to try to clear proteins such as tau, but also other proteins that cause other neurodegenerative diseases. And what stage are you at with things here? We've got a couple of really exciting projects that are looking at different ways of clearing these proteins. Um, so one of them is designed to increase a process called autophagy. And what autophagy does is it surrounds the clumps of misfolded proteins with a membrane and then is able to destroy the material that's within that membrane. Working with our collaborator, Professor David Rubenstein, here at the University of Cambridge, we've identified a signalling molecule that can turn on autophagy and also a process by which an enzyme can remove that signalling molecule. And so the idea is if we can block the enzyme that removes the signalling molecule, then we'll see an increase in the signalling molecule, an increase in autophagy, and we'll start to clear the misfolded proteins. And we've now got molecules that are able to interact with that enzyme at very low concentrations, which is what you need to be able to give something as a drug, and we're in the process of testing them. We've done lots of experiments in cells, and we've got some very exciting data, and I think we're going to be moving those molecules into animal models uh, in the coming months. John Skidmore from the Alborada Drug Discovery Institute. He was speaking with Adam Murphy. Now, even in the scientific world, Alzheimer's can be a complex issue. Just in the last couple of months, there have been papers saying the root cause is as diverse as high cholesterol, gut microbes or even herpes virus. With us is Katie Stubbs. She's from Alzheimer's Research UK. She's going to help us review some of these suggestions. Based on what Claire Durant was telling us earlier, though, Katie, it looks like the, the, the major risk for Alzheimer's disease is old age. It is, yeah. And unfortunately, we can't turn back the clock on that. And because we're living longer, we experience so much across our lifetimes. And this combined with our genes is really what is going to be driving the risk of, uh, of Alzheimer's disease. Is it fair to say then that it's a multifactorial thing? It's not just one trigger for the majority of people. The, the, the minute number of people who have a defined genetic cause aside, for most of us, it's going to be 
the excesses of, of life, including living too long, which ends up causing this. Indeed, you're exactly right. So that's what's really hard for us is trying to pinpoint what are the most important things that we could maybe change. So in terms of lifestyle factors, trying to understand where we can make to give people advice to reduce their risk. Is that where the claim about high cholesterol comes in? Yeah, so the, the message really is what's good for your heart is good for your head. Your brain is only about 2% of your body weight, but needs about 20% of your blood supply. It's a hungry organ. And so if the blood vessels in the brain aren't kind of in tip-top condition, if they're not providing those nutrients and the oxygen to your brain cells, then those cells aren't able to do their job as well. And so the thing with cholesterol is it's essential for all the cellular processes that we have, but too much of it is damaging. So it clogs up our arteries. And if this happens in the brain, then this is going to cause damage within the brain. And the link to gut microbes, because the microbiome is on everything these days, not a week goes by without some new paper alleging that the microbes that live on us and in us are changing our lives in all kinds of manifold ways that we hadn't previously anticipated. Yeah, so our guts are full of bacteria and they do, do important things in helping us digest our food and get all the nutrients out of our food. But actually... What's emerging from the science is that it's the variety of your microbiome and the levels of that variety as well. So the kind of the profile that you have. And we're not at the stage where we know what a healthy one looks like and what one from someone with Alzheimer's looks like. So we're just at that early stage of trying to see the key differences. And so we don't know whether the changes in the variety of, of your bacteria, are they driving the disease process or are they happening at the same time and are just kind of a consequence of what's happening? We, we need to understand that. So we don't yet know what is shifting those changes. Is it things in people's diet? Is it their genes that can affect the, the bacteria you have in your stomach? So there's so many different things we're trying to understand and we're still at those very early stages with understanding it. What about genetics though? Because we've alluded to this a bit and we know that there are rare examples of almost every disease on earth where genes plays a huge role but on average does genetics play a role in Alzheimer's? So there is some role for it and it's really important to understand the different types of uh, the different ways in which genes can affect our disease risk. So Claire's already mentioned genes that can cause disease and for Alzheimer's that's incredibly rare. What we're mainly talking about is risk genes. So genes that if you have a change in them, they might increase your risk, maybe 5%. But for most genes, it's more like 1% or 2% they might be shifting your risk. So it's across the whole of your genetic code. All those different changes could put you in a high-risk category compared to somebody else. And we've discovered about 30 genes that can affect your risk of Alzheimer's at this point. But the likelihood is it could be in the, the hundreds and the thousands. So we need to, again, understand that profile of change and see what makes somebody high-risk versus low-risk. Have you found genes, because it's easy to obsess about problems that we do get, have you found anybody who has certain genes that seem to protect them from Alzheimer's disease? Because arguably they'd be the ones to look at to find out why. Mm. There is a lot of interest in a group of people that are often called super ages. So people who reach their 90s or over 100 and they don't seem to have any kind of ill effects of with their health. And if we're trying to understand why are those people doing so well, that could offer up some clues as to what's going on with the genes and is it protecting them? Because it's more likely that than their lifestyle. What's the take home message with Alzheimer's then? What should a person listening to this take away as the best way to run their life course to, to reduce their risk to the, the minimum it can be? 
So it's it's that message of what's good for your heart is good for your head. So healthy, balanced diet, the mode of training diet has the best um, amount of evidence behind it. So lots of uh, lean meat, so fish and poultry and, and nuts and oils and lots of fresh fruit and vegetables for the diet, really. And is exercise protective? Exercise, it's not protective. It's more that it, if you're not active, your risk is increased. If you're active, your, your risk is more normal. So keeping physically active, your weight, your cholesterol, your blood pressure, all those things, keeping socially integrated as well. Well, it's really important. Well, you're doing that here and we're all doing that here on the radio. So hope, hopefully we're deferring our risk of Alzheimer's disease. Katie Stubbs from Alzheimer's Research UK. Thanks very much for joining us. And now to finish, it's time for question of the week. And Emma Hildyard has been searching for an answer to this vital question from Mark. Is it possible to have so many blood transfusions that your blood type changes? Hmm, interesting question. We put it to our forum. Polly didn't think it was possible. Chris and Evan said you need a bone marrow transplant to change your blood type. So we asked Dr Cedric Gavart from the University of Cambridge. Our blood cells are divided into red cells, white cells and platelets. All our blood cells carry an identity card on their surface made out of different proteins or sugar. And we call these blood groups. The most important and well-known blood groups is the one carried by the red cells and it can be O, A, B or AB combined. When doctors need to give someone a blood transfusion... They try to match the blood group of the red cells in the new blood with the red cells in the patient's blood. So you'd give type A blood to someone who has type A blood in their body. This is important, otherwise the new blood cells will be destroyed very quickly by the patient's immune system and cause a really serious reaction. But in an emergency, you might not have bags of the exact blood group to hand. In hospital, emergency departments and surgical theatres will have access to emergency blood packs that can be accessed very quickly for people who are bleeding and need blood urgently. And this is O blood. The O blood group is the most common. O cells can be given to all patients. I had a patient who was group A and had a very big bleed after delivering her baby. She had to have 76 packs of blood over a period of 8 hours. Most of those were group O. Each pack replenishes about half a litre of blood and an adult is on average 5 litres of blood. This patient basically bled a whole blood volume seven times over. By the time the bleed was under control, she had bled all her own A cells, and she only had the O transfuse cells, so we basically changed her blood group. But that change was only temporary. Over the following three to four weeks, the transfused O cells gradually disappeared and were replaced by her own newly produced A cells. That situation is very different from people who have regular small transfusion. For example, when they have leukemia, they receive two or three packs of red cells every two to three weeks. In those cases, we match the blood and do not replace the whole blood volume several times over. So to answer the question, can we change a blood group with transfusion? Yes, we can, but only in very rare emergency situations. Thanks for that, Cedric. There's always chance to be positive about these things. Next time, we'll be answering a question from Alex. I have several friends with huskies who claim that the thick fur of the dog protects them not only from the cold, but also from a hot summer's day as well. Could this possibly be true? Well, if you think you know the answer, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can join the debate on our forum, nakedscientist.com slash forum. And that's it for this week. Thanks very much to Adam Murphy who put the programme together and do be sure to join us next time when we'll be exploring the question of whether we're all living in the Matrix. We're lifting the lid, that is, 
on computer simulations, from how we predict the weather tomorrow and climate change next century to models of how cells and tissues work and even the origins of the universe. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.